Morning, everybody. Glad you're here and in the house of the Lord. Um, I'm Pastor Tim. If you're a visitor, um, I'm the executive pastor. Pastor John, our senior pastor, has been away on vacation, although he is here this morning, and um, he will be back in the pulpit next week. Um, We have been in a series. This is the fourth in the series. We've been looking at the question, who do you worship? And then we put a kind of a corresponding question with it, who do you really worship? The idea being that You could answer the question, who do you worship, but how you live your life will really say who you really worship. We've been talking about idols, idol worship. We've said the past weeks that idol worship involves much more than the construction of a physical idol. Idol worship happens any time we worship something as God, worship being this idea Worship is to give worth to something. An idol is anything we place above God, anything that has more worth to us than God Himself. We looked at three idols prior to this morning, and those messages are on the website if you missed them and would like to listen to them. The first one we looked at was self. The second idol was money. The third idol was power or influence, status, and significance. This morning, we're going to look at um, the fourth one, and there are a myriad of others. These are just the four that I picked. Um, but the one word I would give you to, uh, to know what this idol is, is relationships. It could be a marriage relationship. It could be a family relationship. It could be a friendship relationship. It's, it's those people that are more, have more worth in our lives to us than God Himself. I will confess to you that this is the hardest of all the sermons. I'm still not settled on it, even though I preached at the first service, because there is so much that could be said. This is such a broad topic, and there's so much application that could be said that I don't have the time to say it in the time allotted, and I'm really hoping that the Lord will use it in your lives and that you can make your own application. We're going to focus in primarily on the love relationship. We're going to be looking at Genesis 29, starting at about verse 15 or 16 this morning. So I'd ask you to turn there. But before we get into that passage, that section of Scripture, let me make a few general thoughts that are important to keep in mind. First off, you need to know this, and I know you do, but relationships are created by God. They're very important. Of course, the very first relationship that we see in the Scriptures is in Genesis chapter 2. It's the marriage relationship or the husband and wife relationship. Uh, Chapter 2 of Genesis verses 20, the second half to 25 says this, "'For Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with the flesh.' Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So you have the the man and the woman, and then, of course, the marriage relationship. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The marriage relationship is very important to the Lord. It's a 
it's the most visible picture of the Lord and how He interacts with His bride. There's so many passages that talk about this relationship and our role in this relationship. Uh, to, the, to the wife in Ephesians 5, it says, for example, that she is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. To the husband, it says, he is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Very important relationship. It is, it's good, but what we must understand that it is possible to invert our worship to put the, the spouse above the Lord. And I'll say more about that in a moment because we're going to look at that in, the, in Genesis 29 in a moment. And then, of course, from the husband-wife relationship, you have children. Genesis 1, 27 to 28 says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. So that now you bring children into this, and you have the, the, the uh, children with the father and the mother relationship. And, of course, Throughout the Scriptures, there's so many Scriptures in the Proverbs and elsewhere about this, this relationship and how important this is to God. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a pro promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. And of course, in verse 4 of Ephesians 6, it says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And again, so many other passages that I could read to you, but a very important relationship, the parent and, and child relationship. And again, that can be inverted. We can put our children above God. How often do we see people who seem to live their life, maybe they have some kind of a deficiency in their own childhood, so they live their life through their children, kind of vicariously living through them. How often parents seem to make their entire existence be validated by their children and how their children do. We hear things like, my daughter is my best friend, my son is my everything. Nothing in and of itself is wrong with that, which, by the way, that changes when they grow up and get married. How often are, do we see marriages after the children leave the home and the marriage breaks up, maybe because those children were elevated to a position they shouldn't have been in, and then other relationships were let go. And I should tell you that children are a blessing from God. Children are a blessing from God. Hear that. But they can become an idol. And when that happens, we get ourselves into trouble. And then, of course, there's so many other relationships that are out there. Friendships, other family, and a myriad of others, co-workers, and so on and so forth. They, they basically break into two um, kind of categories. Of course, we have relationships with other believers, very important to the Lord. Uh, John 13, 34, and 35, just one passage that speaks about it says, a new command I give you, love one another. So you must love one another as by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we are to be in relationship with believers. Now, so often people think that's the only relationship that I need to be in, but but that's not consistent from Scripture because we are told to go out and be in relationship with unbelievers. Um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, Jesus said, 
All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So God wants us in relationship with other people. Although we must not forget that 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians sorry, 6.14 says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do rich wickedness and righteousness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with dark? And that doesn't mean we aren't to be in relationships with them. It just means we don't take counsel from them. But how often we take these human relationships and elevate them above God to the point that we take counsel from people and we, and we act on things that are maybe contrary to what God would have us to do. And so we have to be very careful with that. So, so many relationships, which was what makes this sermon so difficult to preach. But I want you to catch this. God made us relational. He created us that way. Remember, it is the Lord who said, it is not good for man to be alone. And yes, that's in relationship to the marriage relationship, but He made us relational. We need people. Human relationships are normal and good, but the problem comes when we put those human relationships ahead of the Lord. Never forget the great commandment. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. So the point being that our relationship with the Lord always must be number one. It must dictate how we live our lives. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So we are to be in relationships with people, but idol worship happens when we invert those two commands. When we make people the first commandment and the Lord the second commandment, if you know what I mean. We are made, the last thing I want to tell you before we get to Genesis 29 is, we are made to run on the Lord. He is our fuel, if you will. And when we, when we elevate something above Him, we run ourselves into troubles. Remember I quoted last week C.S. Lewis, and he said this, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline. It would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on Himself. He Himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it is not there. And therefore, with human relationships, no man, no woman, no relationship can fill our tank and sustain us. So God is the only one that can do that. So now, let me give you an example of a love relationship to show you how this all works out in that relationship. Genesis chapter 29, we're going to go through the story a little bit at a time as I've done in weeks past because it's a narrative and you've got to kind of go through it a little bit at a time. Let me tell you that there are four main characters involved in this story. You have Jacob, Laban, Leah, and Rachel. And if I could give you just a little bit of background, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know those names. Abraham is the guy that God said he would build the nation through. Abraham marries Sarah, and late in life, they have a child, and his name is Isaac. Isaac is the one that God told to take to the mountain 
to sacrifice, and you remember that God provided a ram to take the place of Isaac, the perfect sacrifice was a picture of what Jesus would do in the, uh, later on. Isaac married Rebekah, and they had twins, Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau is the one that Isaac loved the most. But the bloodline goes through Jacob because Jacob stole it from Esau. And when Esau found this out, he wasn't happy. In fact, he wanted to kill Jacob. Jacob then, as a result, flees to another country, flees from his family, if you will. He stole the birthright, but now he's got to start completely over. And you can read that story. I think it's in Genesis 25. But it's important to know that Jacob has this whole, I think he's relationally deficient as a result of all this. And while he's in that place and his tank is dry, if you will, he spots the one to satisfy his needs, or at least he thinks will satisfy his needs. And her name is Rachel. So let's pick up the story. Genesis 29, starting at verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form. Now, I've read a lot of, a lot of things on this, Leah's weak eyes, and, you know, people debate, does that mean she was like had a, had a vision problem? Could she have been cross-eyed or something like that? I think the weak eyes is not what's most important because it's contrasted against Rachel's beauty. So what I think is being said here is that the weak eyes is a reference to the fact that there was something about Leah's eyes that made her less attractive. And compared to Rachel, she was not very pretty, I guess is the way you would say it. And I would imagine that Leah was pretty insecure. And I should take, I want to take just a quick side note here and say this to you. I struggle with this myself. How often we as people compare ourselves against some ideal. And then we, we feel deficient because we're not like that person. Women struggle with it. Men struggle with it. I, as a pastor, struggle with it, wishing I could be someone else because they're the perfect person, if you will. And I want you to know that in the Christian life, we got to get to the point where we become comfortable with who we are because God created us that way. And there will be people that will love us, but whether they do or don't, God will always love us because He created us. Jacob, though, is in love with Rachel. Pick up the story at verse 18 of Genesis 29. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, huh, that's not in there. It's just the way I read it. Huh, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served year, seven years to get Rachel but they seemed only like a few days to him because he was in love with her. So here you have Rachel. She's like the homecoming queen, you know, the head cheerleader, you know, Miss America without a bathing suit. You know, she's, she's the, 
She's the, she's the ideal, if you will. And then you got Laban, and, and I just got to tell you, what, a, what kind of a dad was he? Huh, I might as well just give her to you, you know, better you than someone else. And then the, it, I really think it's a stupid verse. Sorry, Lord, not that Scripture's stupid. It just, it's just, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. Sounds like a cheesy romance novel to me. Seriously? But he does it. And so pick the story up at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete. I want to lie with her. That is very graphic, folks. Not as graphic in the English. But dads, can you imagine a guy coming to you and say, hey, give me, your, give me your daughter. I want to lie with her. I don't care if he worked seven years or 700 years. Somebody might have to pick him off the ground. But Jacob is overwhelmed with this emotional and physical longing. Why? Well, I think it has to do with his life. He never had his father's love completely. He was chased from his family, so he lost his mother's love. His brother wants to kill him. He's in a land where he doesn't know anybody, at least initially, and he sees this woman, and he thinks, if I could just have her, everything would be okay. Man, the idle alarms ought to be going off. Because see, what we do, what we do is we take these people and we elevate them above God to where they're almost like God in our life. Ernest Becker in an article that I read said, no human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. Here's what he wrote. The failure of romantic love as a solution to human problems is so much a part of modern man's frustrations. No human relationship can bear the burden of Godhood. However much we may idealize and idolize him, the love partner, he inevitably reflects earthly decay and imperfection. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know our existence has not been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. And needless to say, human partners cannot give this. And what the Bible teaches about relationships is foreign to this world we live in because everybody's trying to get that one person. And I just, I think what the message is, is no matter what a person thinks, no human relationship will ever satisfy the need like God can and, and we will be left wanting no matter how great the relationship is because it's the wrong fuel. Let's pick up the story at verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob. Jacob lay with her, and Laban gave his servant girl to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replies, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. 
Finish the daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave him a servant girl as well, to, to, uh, gave a servant girl to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Man, there is just so much that could be said about that section of this story. The first thing comes to my mind, come on, how does that happen? I mean, really, was it dark? Was he drunk? I just don't know how you go, you know, you do your wedding night and you wake up in the morning and find out it's not the woman you thought you were going to be with. Come on. But what does he say? Eh, no big deal. He doesn't really say it that way. I'll work another seven years to have Rachel. And you can almost hear all these sayings we have in our, in our culture today. You know, I need Rachel. She completes me. I need Rachel because love is all you need. I need Rachel because you're nobody until somebody loves you. Blah, 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 blah. He's so lovesick, he, I don't even think he sees the deception of Laban. And how do you think Leah feels? Put yourself in her shoes. Great, I just got married, and my sister's going to move in with us. And my husband loves her more than me. I know, that's totally foreign to us. But I think Leah has a little bit of a hole in her heart as well. So she competes with her sister for her idol's love, her husband. Pick up the story at verse 31, and, at verse 31 of Genesis 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb because Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. For she said, it is, because, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She's desperate, folks. She's desperate for her husband's love. Why? Because she wanted to fill up her tank, and she thought Jacob was the answer to that. Verse 33, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She made the mistake, as so many do, thinking that a child would make everything right. And the names of the sons it's very, you know, in, the, in that language, you, it, it really communicates something. She wants her husband to love her. And so she names her, her first child Reuben, which means he has seen my misery. Certainly the Lord has seen her misery, and now her husband will love her. Simeon means one who hears me. Levi means attached. Certainly he will become attached to me. Why? Why? Because she's looking for her husband 
or that relationship to fill up her tank. No person can ever fill up the hole in the heart that we have for our Lord. Only he can do that. Tim Keller, in one of his books, talking about this story, wrote this. With all due respect to this woman, and he's talking about Leah, no matter what we put our hopes in in the morning, it will always be Leah and never Rachel. Process that. C.S. Lewis said, most people, if they had learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they do want and want acutely is something that cannot be had in this world. No human relationship can ever fill us up. Therefore, we never want to elevate them above the Lord. And I should just tell you, if you do that, what happens when that person dies? So many people struggle when someone dies and they can't get over it. Why? Because maybe they had elevated them too high above the Lord. And I can tell you from personal experience, when you love someone dearly and the Lord takes them home, only the Lord can fill that hole. And only the Lord can make it so you can deal with it. Finally, I think someone in the story gets it, and it's the person that probably was treated the worst, Leah. Look at verse 35. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Judah means praise. Leah had had a bad life. I think you could argue that. She wasn't the homecoming queen, if you will. She wasn't Miss America. She had a dad who dumped her on a man that didn't want her. She had a husband that didn't love her because he loved her sister. But in response to all of that, finally she gets it. She has, Judah, she has this child, and no longer does she... She doesn't mention her husband. She doesn't really mention the children. She doesn't mention her sister or her father. She gets it. And she understands that only the Lord can fill up that relational tank that we need filled up. And no matter how that second human relationship works out, we always have that number one relationship, the Lord. And no matter what happens, He will always love us. He will never let us down. You know, I really battled with this sermon because I wanted to try to there was so much I wanted to say and apply, and as I was battling it with it, uh, someone in our church sent me a, a segment of a book that he was reading, chapter 3. That's, the book's called The Way Back. The title of chapter 3 was That Other God, and the subtitle to it was That Other God is You, That Other God is Me. And what it was all about, the reason he sent it to me, because it was all about idol worship and how we elevate people above the Lord and ultimately elevate ourselves. Here's, what was, here's just a couple of segments from that book. The author writes this, In Genesis 1.27, God made humanity in His own image. But modern believers have inverted this. 
and we have now made a God in our own image. He goes on and writes, this God of our making doesn't mind if we infrequently attend church. I want to take a quick side street because it hit me in the first service and I want to say it again here. Folks, do you know what one of our most well-attended services is? Mother's Day. Do you know what one of our least attended services is? Father's Day. Men, I am speaking to you. Why would we not want to be in church? Because we have so many other things we want to do. My children have never asked me, but if they did ask me, what do I want for Father's Day? I want to be in church with my family. And maybe a $1,000 Lowe's gift card would be good as well. (laughs) But men, step up. You only have so long to influence your family. And when, you're, when your kids leave the home and no longer, no longer follow you, what are they going to fall back on? We need to lead in this. This God of our making doesn't mind if we infrequently attend church, never study His Word, pray to Him only with our laundry list of self-absorbed desires, and occasionally throw a few bucks His way. Idol worship is a problem, and there's not a one of us in this room, me included, that doesn't battle with it. I want to try to bring all these messages together by sharing with you, because idol worship is such a big deal, how do you spot it? How do you protect yourself against it? Well, I can tell you foremost that, first and foremost, that the only way to spot it is to honestly, through heartfelt examination of Self, with the help of God and others, is the only other way you'll fight it. You need the Lord. You need to examine yourself against the the Lord and His Word, and you also need to open yourself up to the accountability of other people, or you will never spot it. Remember, deception, by definition, says if you are deceived, you don't know it. That's why we need other people. But along with that, I'm going to share with you four questions that you might ask yourself if you're trying to evaluate yourself in, to see if you have idols in your life. The first question is this, what do you think or dream about? What occupies your thoughts? Is it the Lord and His kingdom and how you can take the kingdom to the world, or is it you and your own kingdom. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Do you think about the Lord and his kingdom and about that Hindu couple that lives next door to you and how you can maybe get involved in their lives and share the gospel with them because they're lost, even though they're really sweet people? Is it someone else in your life that's out there? Is it a coworker? Are you thinking... How can I be involved in this in our church and taking the kingdom to the world? Or you just think about all the things that you want to do and the things that you want. If you're only thinking about yourself all the time, self could be on the throne. Here's the second question. How do you spend your money? Folks, it's true that your money, there's no way you can get around this. Your money flows to your heart's greatest love. There's no way to get around that. 
In the, in the, in the uh, message I did on money, I shared with you 2 Corinthians 9, which said, Each man should give what he's decided to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What I didn't say that day was this. Do you know why we have so few cheerful givers? Because we got a whole lot of cheerful spenders. We spend all our time, we, we spend all our time spending money on the things we want, and then we don't have money for the things that are important, the things of God. So how do you spend your money? Your money flows to your heart's greatest love. If it's not on the things of the Lord, I mean, you have to spend your money on necessities and things like that, but if you're not, if you're not really putting your resources towards the things of God, money could be on the throne. I would encourage you to take a good look at that. The third question, how much do you strive for attention and recognition? How much do you strive to make sure that people know what you're doing? Remember what Jesus said to the disciples when they were struggling with this wanting to be first in the kingdom. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so the question would be, how much do you strive to be noticed, or how much do you strive to make sure the Lord is noticed and He gets the glory? If you strive for yourself to be noticed, power could be on that throne. And then finally, I would say this, where is your heart? Where is your heart and the emotions that come with that? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Is your heart with the Lord? The second is like this, love your neighbor as you, love yourself, as you love yourself. All the law and prophets hang in these two commandments, and your heart should be on other people. But if your heart is just on other people and not on the Lord, and you invert those relationships, you could have relationships or people on the throne. Tim Keller said, what you treasure will ultimately require you to die for it. Jesus is the only treasure that died for you. John Ortberg said, the strange thing about possessions is that we never really know who possesses who. John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And again, Tim Keller said, the only way to avoid the true God is to fabricate a false God that's controllable. And then, of course, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and idols. He didn't say it like that. He said you cannot serve both God and money. But it's talking about all these things that we elevate above God. You know, I wish God's greatest blessings on you. I want you to know it's a great privilege to be able to preach the Word of God. I love that our senior pastor gives us the opportunity to do those things and actually wants us to excel. 
And I hope you are enriched most of all by the Word of God, and I hope you will use the Word of God to evaluate your life, because not a one of us is God, none of one of us is perfect, and every one of us needs to continually evaluate our lives against the Word of God. Would you stand and I'll pray for us. If you'd like to speak to somebody, we'll have pastors, elders, deacons, um, and their wives up here. Maybe you'd like to have someone pray for you. We'd be happy to do that with you. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you, and we need you on, our, on the throne of our lives, and I pray that you would help us with this, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.